Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. I know most of you are not surprised by that. Matthew chapter 5. I told Sam in, the, in Sunday school that we could go through Revelation six years later when I finished Matthew, which is just a joke. Just a joke. But if you are new um, to Blackman, uh, I want you to, that's what we're doing. We are studying the book of Matthew together. Um, and we're going to take some breaks. I promise we'll take some breaks. But right now, this is, this is where we are. And so just a quick, quick background for those of you that are in the first time, because the sermon that I'm giving is in context with kind of all the others. And so it's just kind of helpful to have a little bit of a, of a background. If you take Matthew 1 through 4 as a segment, that is Matthew saying this is Jesus' identity and his purpose. So he's the son of God, like divinely, um, and, but he's also humanly, he's an ethnic Jew. He's got Gentiles in his lineage. He's got non-Jews in his, in his lineage. He's you know, born of an of a actual human being, a woman named Mary, and he was raised by her and by a human father, a, a, an earthly father named Joseph. The king of the universe, okay, was, was raised in a very rural, humble, backslash, backwater uh, kind of in, environment, very obscure. That's his identity. That's the king of the universe. That's the savior who took the wrath of God on our behalf and was resurrected. Uh, that's, so he's the king, right? But he's, that's his backstory, very humble. Um, and, and then Matthew says that's, there's, he had a purpose. Uh, Matthew 4.23 is really the, the, the thesis statement for all of Matthew. Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Okay, So as we read through Matthews 5 through the end, we're going to get a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching, and a lot of ministry that Jesus did. So that's kind of Matthew 4.23 is the thesis, the statements, the abstract, if you will, of the whole, of the whole book. And we're right in the middle of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're at the very end of chapter 5, um, and there's just a great deal of teaching, not synagogue teaching. Jesus is up outside, up kind of up on a hill. He's sitting, which is the position of authority back in his culture, um, and, and, he's, uh, and so he is teaching. Now, there's going to be more teaching coming mostly in the form of parables, but, but these three chapters are, um, are one long teaching segment that Jesus uh, gave and he begins very famously with the beatitudes, the, ble- the um, what it means to be blessed, the blessings, if you will. And if you read Matthew five three through twelve, you get an idea of Jesus. What Jesus is doing, he's describing people who are a part of the kingdom of heaven. If if. You know, like when you walk into a, a, a restaurant or you walk into a business for a few days, or like, like uh, Allison, we were just talking about this, about where you, where you work. Like you can feel the culture, you can feel the values of a, of a place when you're there. That's what Jesus is describing. When you walk into a church, when you become immersed in a group of Christians, these should be the values, these should be the qualities, these should be the traits that you feel. People who are poor in spirit. People who mourn their sin and the sin of the world. People who are constantly cyclically, increasingly aware of the holiness of God and the depravity of, their, of them as a human being. And they kind of live with this solemnity and this reverence. That's, that's Christians. And as a result, they are very humble and merciful and moral and they bring peace and they bring goodness to all their relationships, whether that's personally or in the community around them. That's the Christians. You don't hear any argumentativeness. You don't hear any uh, 
uh, brashness. You don't hear any of that stuff. You hear humility. You hear brokenness. Okay? You hear love. You hear peace. You bring goodness. Okay? So that's the Beatitudes. And then, where we are in our segment, Jesus is now applying those traits and qualities specifically to the kinds of relationships that we have as Christians. Um, and, and he's doing so by contrasting what the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the day, looked like, okay, and what they taught as a result, okay. And if I could just say really shortly, what Jesus is pointing out in Matthew 5, 21 through the rest of chapter 5, he is pointing out that the religious life and the Christian life are two very different things. The religious life and the Christian life are two very different. A religious life is very concerned with technicalities that give confidence in our abilities to look moral. That's religion. Okay? But the Christian life is concerned with the heart, which gives us a desire for Jesus' ability to make us moral. Very different. Okay? And Jesus has been applying that to all of our relationships in Matthew 5. All of our relationships. So if you want to understand a Christian understanding of conflict and anger... Here's the one, Matthew 5. If you want to understand a, how Christians are thinking about sex and marriage, we got that chapter for you too. If, if you want to know how that affects the way that you talk to people, being a person of your word, we got a passage for you about that. And then today, in Matthew 38, 5, 38 through 42, Jesus is applying this to, here's the phrase I'm going to use, your basic, your normative Christian relationships, just your normative relationships in general, okay? And I'll make some, because Jesus says, I'll make the, the, um, the exceptions, but to your normative everyday relationships, here is the same principle being applied. And here's basically what it looks like. Here's the, here's the thesis of today's passage. The religious life is concerned with rights and entitlements. But the Christian life is concerned with sacrifice and service. Okay. Religious people are very concerned about their rights and their entitlements. But Christians are very concerned with sacrifice and service. Very different. So would you stand with me and read Matthew 5, uh, 38 through 42? I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt... Let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may, you may be seen it. It's been a... Um, it's been a remarkable week for the U.S. Supreme Court, particularly for two decisions from where I stand. One regarding guns, 
and one regarding abortion. So regarding guns, there was a law in the state of, the New, York, state of New York, 1913 law, that required anyone who wanted to carry a concealed handgun outside of their home, they had to show proper cause, that's the quote, in order to get a license to carry that gun in that way. And for 109 years, New York courts consistently interpreted that phrase, proper cause, okay, to require applicants for a concealed weapon to show more than just a general desire that they wanted to carry a concealed weapon. Instead, an applicant would have to demonstrate a special need. Okay, yeah, the law says you can have one, but you've got to show me, you've got to tell me why you have to demonstrate the need, the proper cause for that self-defense. So maybe you have a pattern of physical threats against you. Maybe you have a restraining order against someone, something like that. And that, there are lots of states that have that law. California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey. Uh, all have, and there are many other cities that have that, that law as well. Okay. But this week, in a 6-3 ruling, the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms in part, did not allow the government to determine whether or not you actually needed one. You get to determine whether or not you need one. Okay. In other words, writing in the opinion, Clarence Thomas says, the right to bear arms is your right in a concealed way, and the, the government doesn't get to determine whether or not you actually meet some sort of standard. It's just your right. You are entitled to do that as an American. Okay. Regarding abortion, the court ended almost 50 years of precedent that gave a woman the right, the entitlement, to an abortion across the United States, and in a very long opinion, which I encourage you to read, five of the justices behind Judge Alito pointed out that the U.S. Constitution does not actually refer to an abortion at all. Nor, in the opinion, is it implied in places like the 14th Amendment, and nor is the court required to keep precedent with a prior ruling just because it was a prior ruling. Okay. So the right to an abortion was revoked at a federal level and given to the states to determine at their own constitutions. Okay? So as you can see, everyone is still quite concerned about their rights. And this is not new. Okay? The vast majority of civilizations that have gone before us were totalitarian. Democracy is weird in the history of governance. They're totalitarian, they're dictatorial, Israel included, by the way. And it led to far fewer rights for citizens in regard to their relationship with the government. But even so, there were many laws in those dictatorial states that governed relationships between citizens. Not between the citizen and its government, but between citizens. And these were laws that were meant to keep things from escalating or becoming violent. They're laws to govern relationships between one another. And these are the things that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 5.38. Look at your text. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this statement that Jesus cites is in three places in your Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. 
Exodus 21 says, there, it says this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So Jesus is giving the footnotes version, right? He's got the tweet. There's the full thing. <laughs> Leviticus 24, 19 and 20. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Deuteronomy 19.21, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So it's there. And the purpose of the law was similar to those that Jesus and the Pharisees were, have been discussing in our previous examples with regard to murder and divorce. The purpose of these laws was to control excesses and abuses Okay, so in this particular case, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the goal of these laws was to control anger, control violence, and control revenge. And here's the key phrase, through the judiciary. This is a legal text that we're reading. In order to keep violence from escalating, the judicial system had this law, and it would ensure they could use it at their discretion to ensure that the punishment fit the crime. Because otherwise, if someone, you know how it is, someone wrongs you, you want to wrong them back and maybe mm, in a little bit more. You know what I mean? I want to be a friend of yours mm, and a little bit more. It's the song. I want to get you back mm, and a little bit more. Just so you come out on top. The judicial system had this law. That's not in the notes. I'm sorry. The judicial system had this law to keep it from escalating. Like, no, you need a judge to do this for you. Okay. So the law that Jesus cites from the Old Testament was not given as a law to judge relationships between the citizens. It was a law for the judiciary to use as a way to maintain healthy relationships between citizens. But the Pharisees... In Jesus' day, this is why Jesus says, you have heard it said, were teaching it as a moral law, not a judiciary law. They were teaching it as a law between people, not involving the government, not involving the judiciary. They were taking it out of its context and giving it a meaning that it never had and was never meant to have. So they were teaching that the Bible taught that you have the right to retaliate, to, to retaliate in your interpersonal relationship. Somebody's wrong you, you've got the right to bring it back to them and maybe mm, a little bit more, okay? Which is not at all what that Bible actually says. So over and against that interpretation, we have verses 39 through 42. Don't resist an evildoer, Jesus says. On the contrary, if anybody slaps you on the right cheek... Turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, give him your coat too. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him another. Give to the one who asks. Don't turn away from the one who actually wants to borrow from you. So I'm going to break these out into three things. But before we do, I want to, I want to give you three, three things. Because we're talking about normative personal relationships. And whenever somebody reads this text, they always, they should. This is healthy because they're trying to bring it to bear in their life. There are always these areas where you think, D 
does this actually apply? So let me just clear the, clear the, the air for this, okay? Number one, Jesus is not giving us foreign policy advice, okay? This is not advice for how to govern between nations. Jesus is describing the personal life behavior of a disciple, not a foreign policy. Nations are not disciples, okay? So don't look at this as a way to say, see, we should be pacifist as a country. That's not, that's not how this applies, okay? Number two, Jesus is talking about a Christian's personal relationships. Okay? So if you're a Christian police officer, this is not going to work, right? If somebody is attacking you, or breaking into your home. You don't feel conflicted about this passage of Scripture. Okay? If you are a linebacker trying to fill the gap on a running play, you can still be a linebacker and fill the gap on your running play. So Jesus is describing normative Christian... It's important. You get, people get conflicted about this. Okay. The third thing I want to say, and this is really important, is that um, this is not applicable in relationships that are abusive. Okay? If you're being used or oppressed, or abused in some shape, form, or fashion. This is not a text that says you need to stay in that relationship. Jesus is speaking about normative relationships, not abusive relationships. And abusive relationships may be common, but they are not normal. Okay? This, just, this is not an excuse for that. Okay? With that in mind, let, let me, let, let's go to the text. Jesus says three things. Number one, Jesus says... You have no rights to retaliation in your normative Christian relationships. I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. We have Christians as disciples of Jesus forego the right to the, the so-called right, the false teaching right to retaliate in relationship. I had two childhood foes in elementary school. J.D. Bassey and Ashley Dykus. What kind of name is Ashley Dykus? See, I, even now I want to criticize him. Like I just, like, uh, I'm sure I earned some of the abuse that I got from these, these boys because of my mouth that I used to make up for my lack of physique. Um, no, one, no one felt physically threatened by me, but they could feel mentally threatened by me. It was good with words, if you can imagine. And John David Bassey used his knuckle to uh, reconstruct my nose in fourth grade in a football game. And Ashley Dykus tried many, many times to, to, to end me. One time, one time we got into a fight in the playground, <laughs> and Miss Brown caught us again. And she, well, she sent us into Dr. Mr. Kitchen's office, the principal. And he said, boys, I, I, you have two choices. You can, either, you can either take a paddle or you can miss recess. And he made us go together. You see what he was doing? He was forming a relationship between the two of us. And we just looked at each other and said, paddle. <laughs> we were not missing that kickball game. Um, right? It's that kind of relationship, one where there's aggression, one where there's, um, that, you know, one where there's animosity, not abuse. I'm not talking about abuse. Very important. One, one where there is, it's a normative Christian relationship where in which, there, which you are positioned against each other as antagonists for some reason. That Jesus says, listen, if someone is being antagonistic towards you, 
you don't have the right to get back at them as a believer. In fact, you should give him the other cheek to let him hit you there too. Okay? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, give him the left one. This is hard. Because we are born with the propensity to demand our own way. By the way, a slap on the cheek in Jesus' day was not physical violence. It was an insult. Okay? It's like this thing on TikTok where you put mouth, water in your mouth. or Not that I don't have a TikTok account, I promise. Okay? I, just, I, read, I read these things and people say, if you fill your mouth with water and you each put a tortilla in your hand and you slap each other with tortilla until the water comes out. Don't try this at home. Okay? It was, it's like you're trying to like get out your, your frustration with each other, and, and so it's a way of making you laugh and, and see it for what it is. It's great. It's a great little tactic, okay? I'm sure many therapists will, will start using it. So, so it's not an insult. When Jesus says, when Jesus says, when he slaps, that's not a physical violence. That's an insult, okay? For us, we use, we use words. Uh, we, use, uh, we use language. We use name-calling. We use those kinds of things. When somebody does that, Jesus says, you can't retaliate. You can't do that. We so strongly, innately believe in fairness, a sense of justice, that we often naturally tend to justify our retaliation as making things even or giving the other person what they deserved. And Jesus says that this kind of behavior or attitude is not a part of the kingdom of heaven. Instead of you and I insisting on our rights when we are insulted, we're to yield them up so that the gospel is made much of, not us and our rights. You have to so value the opportunity for Jesus to get glory in that relationship that the means to that is not making much of yourself in a normative Christian relationship. It's being passive so that Jesus has an opportunity to get in between the two of you and be a mediator. And Paul reflects this very clearly in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. So instead, because God is the one who's actually just, not you, even when you're insulted and wronged, you are not properly just enough to bring rectification to the situation. Okay? Paul says, instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Look for an opportunity to serve the person who is antagonistic towards you. Why? Because God is the one who is actually just, and this actually introduces Jesus into the middle of the relationship and gives you an opportunity to bring Jesus glory in that relationship and for that person to believe as a result. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for in so doing you will heap fiery coals on his head. This is hard. And I want to argue with it. I want to call it unreasonable because as, almost as if Jesus' goal is for me to... It, it's, it's, it re, what it reveals is that I want Jesus' goal for me to be a very comfortable life. Like, why can't we all just get along as not Jesus? It's not biblical, right? Um, I want to call it unreasonable as if Jesus' goal is for us to live comfortably by an appeal to reason. It's just not the case. My resistance to this teaching reveals the total depravity of my heart. There, I mean, this just takes it as close as you can get to the core of depravity. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven have no right to retaliate in their personal relationships on this earth. We just don't. Nor do we have the right to stuff. Look at verse 40. 
As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Disciples of Jesus do not have the right to things. So there was a context. Context matters. There was a Jewish law that recognized that your outer cloak, this outer garment, the one that Jesus is referencing to, wants to sue and take away your, he says, let him have your coat as well. It's the outer cloak. It's the heavy, warm, resilient thing, okay? The law prevented you from losing that in, in any way. Like, you, they could take away everything I've shown. They cannot take away your shelter, your protection from the elements, okay? Even in the most heinous crime, a person could not lose his coat. The law protected those from being sued if it's not criminal, it's just civil. Limited liability prevented somebody from taking your coat, even if you owed them more than it was worth, okay? So if you take that into consideration, what Jesus is saying here is incredibly piercing. Because what he's saying here is that even if the law protects you, we are still not to live by the rights to our possessions. Because he's saying, give your tunic also. Give. They want to sue you and take your shirt, and they're justified. Give your tunic also. Even if the law protects you, go further. Go further. Our stuff, our property, our homes, our cars, our clothes, our food, none of those things are actually ours to hold and guard jealously. The biblical attitude toward our stuff is that everything it comes from the Lord, we are stewards, not owners. And everything that we steward is to be used for the best way possible to the glory of God. And it may be that in an antagonistic relationship that you don't just obey the law, you actually give more than the law requires. Even if the law, even if the law would have you not give that thing, Jesus says it may be that you, you give that thing as a way of introducing me to the relationship. Even those things that we regard as ours as rights by law, we have to be prepared to abandon. You are not a citizen of Tennessee anymore, not first and foremost. You are not a citizen of the United States first and foremost. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You have a passport to the United States. You have citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. You have a visa here now, a visitor's visa, a foreign visa. You live by a different set of laws and rules as it's the kingdom of heaven. And Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, bring this to bear so clearly. By the way, last week's sermon was 15 minutes. This one is 35 minutes. So really, it's just two short sermons put together. So, you know, it's fine. It's fine. We're going to be fine. Okay? Listen to Paul say this. Paul puts this so so beautifully into the Corinthian church. And this is important because the, church, the Corinthian church, what a mess. Okay? They weren't doing this and it was having significant gospel impact uh, to, the, to the negative in their influence in the community and in the body of Christ as the church. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 1-7. through 7. Paul says, If any of you has a dispute against another, a normative Christian relationship, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous? and not before the saints. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge these trivial cases among you? 
Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, and we have these matters because we're broken. And if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? So the situation is you got two Christians with a trivial Judge Judy kind of thing going on. Okay. I watched way too much television as a child, didn't I? You got a Judge Judy thing going on. And, Paul, and, they're, and, and instead of dealing with it within the church, they're dealing with it out in the court. And Paul says this is to the detriment of the gospel and its witness because you as Christians are going to judge the world under Jesus. You're going to judge angels under Jesus. we got to live according to the gospel in our relationships. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between you fellow believers? And instead, a brother goes to court against a brother, and th therefore, and those brothers, those, aren't, they're, they're, those judges are unbelievers. As it is, Paul says, to have legal disputes against one another is a defeat for you. And then this verse, Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Did you hear that? Paul and Jesus are saying is that when it comes to our personal relationships and some of the disputes that we get into, it is more like Jesus to be wronged in that dispute than to get your rights in that dispute. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's better just to be wronged in some of your normative Christian relationships to let it go, let it go? and be wronged, to suffer the wrong for the sake of the gospel in a normative Christian relationship than it is to be right. Why? Because whatever form of justice that you're trying to bring to bear in that relationship is inevitably going to be flawed, but Jesus is not going to be flawed when he brings it. So let Jesus bring the final justice in the end, and for now you make much of Jesus by service and sacrifice. No one is saying amen because it hurts, but it is good. And we have no right to convenience. Verse 41 and 42. Oh, this is the most anti-American Western middle class verse I could ever find. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Folks, we do not have the right to convenience as citizens of heaven. Jesus begins with the illustration about a Roman soldier conscripting a citizen into action on his behalf. A Roman soldier could come and say, hey, you, grab this thing, you're going to go with me. And he could do it a mile, or she could do it a mile. Everybody understood what Jesus was talking about in this moment. It's a textbook illustration for inconvenience. Drop what you're doing. Serve somebody in a hard way that you generally despise and distrust. You can imagine the resentment and the bitterness that would likely build into a Jewish person's heart who would be forced to serve his enemy. And then Jesus come up and say, not only should you do it, but you should do it gladly and you should do more than he's asking of you. Citizens of the kingdom of God are not entitled to having our time and our resources go the way that we want them to go. 
So we can't be resentful, for example. We can't be resentful when people call us and take up a lot of our time because they have nothing better to do. We can, again, we're not being abused. The phone exists for your convenience too. I get it. We get it. But at the same time, we have to have discernment by the Spirit to know if we're not going the extra mile for reasons that Jesus would say, you know, you're right, you're being abused or oppressed here. You need to, you need to create some space. We can't get haughty when we're asked to make significant adjustments at work or give an additional task when we weren't expecting it. You know, it's not in my job description. Don't say that. Because no. it's not about us, it's about Him and the gospel. When you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you're just not entitled about convenience. And Jesus lays, I mean, he, there are no resources where this doesn't apply. Time and effort have been addressed with the Roman citizen. The other resource we have is money. Those are the three we got, time, money, and effort. And Jesus goes, this applies to time and effort by conscription, and then it applies to your money too. Verse 42, give to the one who asked you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, I get it. Don't get distracted by arguments pertaining to whether or not you should give to every beggar that comes across your path. So the, the real burden of this verse is, is that stinginess is not a trait of Christians. Okay. The, 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 the convenience when it comes to money, right? When it comes to your money, it's about Him. You have to have the discernment. You have to have the discernment. There's no set of rules I could give you where all this applies. You have to have the discernment to say, I'm being asked to provide a microloan. I'm being asked to give by a beggar. There's a guy holding sign. There's a $5 here. You have to discern whether verse 42 is for you in this moment or not. Not me. And go with God. Okay? So here's the way that I've tried to, to frame this. We're nearly done. According to Jesus, we are wrong to take laws that are meant for the judiciary and apply them to our personal relationships. And we still have the judiciary but we're not to apply those laws to our personal relationships like followers of Jesus. These are, Jesus is talking about normative Christian relationships in which we are not retaliatory. We are not uh, laying claim to our stuff in our relationships. <laughs> I've been preaching for 25 years and that has never happened. That is so weird. Okay. I'm sorry about that. Um, and it, when it comes to our personal relationships, we are not bent on convenience. We do not insist on our rights. We insist on sacrifice and service. That's the principle. Sacrifice and service. You can discern by the, with the power of the Spirit to know whether, whether there are certain situations where it's abusive or not. Okay? But here's another way to think about it. Verse 39. It says, When you are in a relationship with an evildoer, what Jesus is saying is that you should not treat that person as an enemy or an antagonist to be resisted or challenged because that's just going to lead to a cycle of violence in the relationship, right? It's like when I was in college and, and Fayette Williams put a dead squirrel in the doorway of our apartment, of our townhome. Just put a dead squirrel right there. And he knew we weren't going to be there for a couple of days. Not turn the other cheek, okay? <laughs> You know, so I, took, I, bought a, I bought a bucket of pork brains frozen from Publix. 
And then I went with Alan into the apartment. We hung out and I said, hey, guys, can I borrow your, use your house? They had the exact same apartment we did. Can we borrow your, uh, can I use your bathroom? Yeah, 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 sorry, go, go in there. And inside the, the vanity was a cardboard box that was empty. So I put it in the box, I turned it over, and I left it in there. And like a week later, <laughs> you know, I, I, so I turned it up the notch, right? And I'm not going to tell you how bad, I mean, it went on and on and on until somebody's car window got broken. Like, it just, because it escalates in violence. That's what Jesus is pointing out. When you get into a relationship with an antagonist, don't demand on your rights right then and there and retaliate in your own form of justice. Instead, choose to suffer wrongly. In that moment, choose to suffer even if it's wrong, choose to suffer because that's going to keep violence out and it's going to give Jesus an opportunity to get in. Why didn't you respond? Because Jesus didn't respond with violence, demanding his own rights. He took the wrath of God even though he didn't deserve it. I deserved it. He took it for me. That's why I didn't do it. Verse 40 where Jesus says, give him your shirt and your tunic. I mean, you've got a situation in which there's a high degree of legal pressure on a poor person. I mean, if you're going to lose your shirt and your tunic, you're in, a, you're in a bad spot. And Jesus is saying that when, such a person lets the, that when such a person lets the plaintiff, even if the law lets the plaintiff take the tunic, that person who's now completely broke is then powerfully able to help that angry plaintiff see how harsh he's being by giving them the tunic. It, it, by being effectively naked before that person, it introduces the opportunity for that person to see just how harsh, just how strong, just how antagonistic they are being. And it allows Jesus to come in to the relationship. You can say, why did you do that? Why did you give me more than the law? Because Jesus gave me so much more than the law actually required. In verse 41, being forced by a soldier to go the mile. You have a situation in which an enemy in authority asks for his right. And Jesus says that instead of just responding with self-interested attempts at avoidance or in begrudging compliance, we should respond not with just compliance but with generosity because that can transform the relationship into something not that's just required but something that is chosen. Not something that is mandatory but something that has love. Because Jesus didn't come because he had to. He came all the way. He put heaven on hold for his glory. And he came right here and went the extra mile to get you. So we need to go the mile and get them. In verse 42, even when the pressure on our own convenience and self-interest takes the more modest form of begging or someone asking for a loan, Jesus calls for generosity rather than pushing the other way on the basis of like, well, if I'm not going to get what I'm due, then I'm not going to be a part of it. No, 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 no. Because you know what Jesus did? He gave it all up and came to get you. And money is a very powerful tool for helping people understand just how much you love Jesus. Jesus is the one who had the only right to justly retaliate against evil, but he didn't. He defeated it 
by service of sacrifice. Jesus is the one who actually owns everything and gave up everything. Jesus is the one with absolute authority over everyone and everything, and he served us all at great cost to himself, even death on the cross. Which is why Peter told the exiled, persecuted church these words in chapter 2, verse 21 from 1 Peter. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that, having died to the sin, we might live for righteousness. And righteousness is described in verses 22 and 23. By his wounds, you are healed. Which means we're going to live a wounded life to bring gospel healing. We need to pray. Lord, Lord, we... Um, we, uh, we want to live unwounded lives. That's the honest truth. And inconvenience, wounds, giving wounds, uh, taking risk relationally, wounds, um, not fights. Had Jesus not done these things, we would not be right with you. So it must be that doing these things as Jesus did them shows Jesus to the world. So help us to live truthfully to this text. We need the Spirit to do it. There's some in here, I dare say, that we are pretty confident we could do in our own flesh. This ain't one of them. So we ask you, Father, give us the spirit to live the gospel truth. This world will not know you if we do not live like you. And you lived this verse, this passage, faithfully to the end. Help us do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.